You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. Oh, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCormick. I'm a performance coach, a life coach, a wellness entrepreneur, and a podcast host. Mm-hmm, that's clear. And I bring to you every single week leading experts in the field of performance. And it really is my pleasure to do this uh, because I'm a curious person and you're a curious person and you want to know all the tips and tricks, all the biohacks, all the approaches to nutrition that can help you live the best possible life. And today's guest on the show is Dr. Paul Saladino. Dr. Paul Saladino is known as Carnivore MD. He has a book coming out called The Carnivore Code. And uh, this, you can imagine where this is going. We talk about the carnivore diet. This was a pretty cool conversation because the type of carnivore approach that uh, Dr. Paul Saladino uh, posits is nose to tail. So that's lots of organ meat um, and different different elements of uh, of beef, grass-fed, of course, grass-fed, grass grass-finished, grass, grass finished. Um, but he's eating brains, he's eating suet, he's eating all sorts of stuff. Just listen to what this guy has for breakfast uh, in the very beginning of this episode. In this episode, we cover a clear justification for not eating plants. You know, if you remember back to the Dr. Anthony J podcast, some people are allergic to chlorophyll. Some people should not be eating plants. Dr. Paul Saladino, I'll just call him Paul or Dr. Saladino, he says that you shouldn't eat spinach. Uh, for some of you, your mind is blown, but uh, he explains why. We talk about how you can practically eat nose-to-tail carnivore. We talk about the term dirty carnivore. We talk about carnivore and bowel movements. We talk about how does big food influence our dietary options? I mean, I know that you guys are are up to date on this stuff, but we really get into how processed food is literally shoved down our throats by big food. Um, and what's their agenda? Well, follow the money. We talk about the importance of regenerative farming techniques, the worst mistake in human history, and we bring up a book that I read in college that is uh, that really did change my life, and that's not an exaggeration. It's a book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. He also wrote another book called The Story of B, and this does shake up paradigms, talking about um, agriculture. Um, hint, hint, the worst mistake in human history, according to... Uh, the reference in this podcast is is agriculture and the cult of the seed. Uh, we talk about why you shouldn't blame ruminant animals for greenhouse gases. We talk a little bit about Greta Thunberg and how the stuff that she's talking about just um, is factually incorrect. We talk about sustainability and terraforming Mars. Yep, we go there. We went deep in this one. We, we really took a broad approach to this, this conversation, but... It, as you know, this is a really relevant topic of conversation. How do we feed the p- people on the planet? How do we do it? What's the what's the most nutrient dense food on the planet? Also, that should be clear, if not by now. 
really, really fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed his take. Um, Dr. Saladino is very well-spoken. He's very clear. Um, and I really like the way that he thinks of his, his body as sort of a conduit and how uh, he wants to drive a Lamborghini. He wants his body to be a Lamborghini and feeding it the fuel of uh, nose-to-tail carnivore is, is his optimal performance technique. I'm really excited to provide this episode for you. And uh, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Paul Saladino. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. Dr. Paul Saladino, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thanks for having me on, brother. It's good to be here. I, I like to start with the very first question for everybody, and it's it's going to be relevant to this conversation definitely, which is uh, what time is it where you are and what have you put into your body today? So it is 2.06 p.m. I'm in San Diego, California today, and I have uh, eaten one meal so far today, which consisted of um, about 16 ounces of organic grass-fed steak with probably three ounces of grass-fed suet, some bone broth that I made myself, and uh, about four raw uh, organic pasture-raised soy and corn-free egg yolks. I think that's all I've had today so far. Yeah. All right. And what, uh, what cuts of steak did you eat? I think there was two New Yorks. I think I had two New York steaks, like one and a half, 10-ounce New York steaks this morning. Yeah. And then... This afternoon, I will eat some liver and some kidney, and I've got some brain in the fridge as well. All right. I know. It's crazy. Nice. <laughs> you, Good stuff. We, I had um, uh, Dr. Ben Lynch on the podcast a couple episodes ago, and he was saying that you went up to his house and made some beef tartare and fed it to his teenage boys. <laughs> they uh, loved it. That's what he said. They loved it. Yeah. yeah. And Ben loved it too. Ben was when, when I gave it to Ben, he felt a little high, and I think a lot of people that – eat completely raw meat, though the meat that I ate this morning was cooked. A lot of people that eat raw meat for the first time feel a little buzz. A lot of people that eat raw liver for the first time get a little buzz. I'm sure that it's just super bioavailable nutrients in a way that their body's not used to. It was fun being able to be like a little bit of a drug dealer for Ben in the best way. <laughs> uh, why do you, or is it just just by happenstance that you decided to eat, that you're eating more organ meat in the afternoon? Is there any sort of rhyme or reason to that? No, it's, I mean, I'll eat organ meat throughout the day. It's just this morning I decided to eat the organ meat in the afternoon. But yeah, generally I'll eat it all the time, whatever I've got. Can you explain to people what suet is for those unfamiliar? Yeah, so we're we're already deep in the carnivore world right now. I, I'm sure a lot of listeners are just already losing their mind, but hopefully in a good way. Uh, stay with me, guys. Stay with me. Uh, so suet is the kidney fat. It's the fat around the kidney of a cow. So I'm getting the fat from 
White Oak Pastures in Georgia, which is a farm that I think is amazing. They're doing incredible work in the regenerative agriculture sphere, which we can get into if you want to dive into what regenerative agriculture is. But they are raising their cattle in probably the best manner that I have ever seen. I personally visited the farm. We had an event there. They're doing rotational grazing in the sort of the, the methods of Alan Savory. And their fields are so green. Their land is so healthy. They combine animal species on uh, paddocks of land. So they'll combine lamb and, and uh, other ruminants. So they'll combine lamb and cows together. But anyway, basically, it's the best grass that an animal could eat. And I'm sourcing most of my meat from them now. And suet is the kidney fat, not to be confused with trimmings, sometimes synonymous with tallow, which is the fat you find around muscle. In a healthy animal, that's eating grass, a healthy ruminant animal, like a cow that's eating grass, you don't get intramuscular fat. But in grain-fed animals, which become unhealthy, you will start to see intramuscular fat, much like you would in a human. So in humans, we know that visceral adiposity, the adipose tissue within the peritoneum of the abdomen is an indicator of insulin resistance or and can be inflammation with a dip, in, inflammatory with the dipokines and other sort of fat-based inflammatory cytokines being secreted from it. And in obese and insulin resistant humans, we will also get fat deposits in our muscle. And so fat marbling on a steak is an indication that the animal that you are eating is not a healthy animal. So I am a staunch supporter uh, of grass-fed, grass-finished animals, especially from farms that are practicing regenerative agriculture, which seeks to mimic the grazing practices of an ecosystem in the past and has so many benefits. Anyway, that is the long explanation of what suet is. Kidney fat, from an animal. I also eat the trimmings and with my carnivore diet, I'm thinking about uh, amounts of fat and protein specifically. Excellent. Yeah, I definitely want to get into regenerative farming. You know, um, it's it's the conversation that we should be having. It's the, it's the greater, more meaningful conversation that should be happening around farming practices. So I am, I am I'm definitely eager to get into that with you. But I would love to start by Maybe if you could share sort of your genesis story um, um, into into your specialization um, within the carnivore paradigm. H how is it that you found yourself being an advocate and also um, going you know full carnivore for yourself? Well, how did that come about? So I've always been interested in food and the way it affects us as humans. I. I think of my body as a vehicle through which I experience the world and I want to drive the fastest, sexiest vehicle that I can and I want it to perform well. When I hit the accelerator, I want some G-forces. You know, I want zero to 60 in 2.4 seconds like a Tesla. I don't want to drive a Honda Civic through life and that can be that can be libido, that can be athletic performance, that can be mental clarity, that can be emotional stability, that can be physical strength, that can be all of the things that make our life interesting to live and that is what we experience through our corporeal body and mind and what we do in our lives. And so I want to be as honed as I can and I've always been interested in the way that food affects that. I think as humans what we've realized is that the food we eat can turn a Honda Civic into a Porsche or vice versa, right? We can we can go from fit to fat or fat to fit and we can affect our experience of life with the food we eat. So it's always been an interesting puzzle to me. What is that answer? How do we perform to the best ability as humans? How individual is it? Is there an overarching answer? Is it very individual between people? And 
more specifically, I think the first question that I've always asked is what is the best for me? And then how does that translate to the people I work with, my patients as a physician in my practice? So I've been iterating around food as performance enhancing fuel in my body and my experience of life for many, many years. Um, I think that I've been thinking about food for most of my life. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up with a dad who was a doctor and I was fat phobic because that was the narrative and I was quite young. I went very low fat and um, that probably wasn't the best answer, but that was, you know, maybe 30 years ago I was thinking about maybe that's the answer. And then later in my life, I tried a vegan diet, which was about 15 years ago. I was a raw vegan for about seven months. I lost 25 pounds of muscle mass and had a number of health issues and realized that being plant-based was a horrible idea for humans. Um, and then went to a paleo diet. And throughout my whole life, I've had eczema that's been variably bad and minor. But at certain times in my life, it's been very bad to the point that I needed um, IV antibiotics or oral antibiotics for super infection and impetigo. And uh, a couple of times I had sepsis related to how bad the infection in the eczema got to be when I was doing jujitsu and having it exposed to a lot of kind of dirty mats. But I, throughout all of it, I used my health issues, my autoimmune illness, which was eczema and some reactive airway disease, which is synonymous with asthma, to really be a metric and think, all right, I'm now doing a paleolithic diet. I'm doing an organic paleo diet. I'm eating the fruits and vegetables and meat as well as I can. I was eating entirely grass-fed then, and I still had bad eczema. And that was really the beginning of the seed for my interest in a carnivore diet, thinking, wait a minute, I'm doing what many people would consider to be a great diet. I still have autoimmune disease. What is triggering this? It's probably the plants. And we get hints of this because most elimination diets on a spectrum will cut out many plants. Um, and there's AIP, which is autoimmune paleo, which is gonna cut out more than a regular paleo diet. If listeners are not familiar, a paleolithic diet's gonna cut out dairy and beans and grains, but an AIP, an autoimmune paleo diet, might cut out nuts and seeds as well as nightshades and a few more triggering foods. So we're cutting out more plants with AIP. AIP didn't work for me, my eczema continued. At times it got even worse. Then you think, oh, maybe I should cut out oxalates. Well, there's a lot of food and there's a lot of oxalates in food. So you got sweet potatoes have oxalates, spinach has oxalates. That was easy to get rid of. Spinach is a horrible idea, I think. <laughs> so many oxalates, like nobody should have spinach in their diet. It's probably a huge cause of kidney stones in our society, calcium oxalate kidney stones. Uh, and then I would cut out other things with oxalates. I mean, beets have oxalates. Okay, that didn't work. I still have eczema. All right. Let's do all of them at the same time. And maybe I'll cut out histamines too. And I'll cut out histamine releasing foods. That didn't work. So my diet is getting smaller and smaller and smaller on the plant side. And then, then there's salicylates. And what I really quickly came to realize was, wait a minute, why am I eating plants at all? Why am I eating plants at all? Because there are just so many potentially offending compounds in plants. And then when you back up for one second, it makes sense. Plants and animals have been co-evolving for 450 million years, and animals have had to evolve defense mechanisms for the plant toxins. The first thing is that the plants evolve toxins and other uh, both physical spikes like we're used to seeing on cacti or roses to prevent animals from taking a bite out of them and chemical spikes. And these are not theoretical, these are not uh, opinion, these are actual known botanical chemicals. And there are thousands in plants. And it's just a very deep rabbit hole that when you start to look at, you realize, wow, plants have a lot of chemicals in them 
and we are generally assuming that they are beneficial for us. But when we really think about the intention of plants and the interaction of plants and animals for the last 400 million years, a very different story starts to unfold in which you can make a very compelling case that these plant compounds are not good for us. And we don't need them, that there's no real benefit to them, and they're probably harming us. And so I think that that's where the idea of a carnivore diet comes from. The first premise is where are the nutrients in foods the vast majority of bioavailable nutrients are in animal foods. There's really, aside from vitamin C, which we can dig into, nutrients, vitamins and minerals are present in much higher amounts and they're much more bioavailable in animal foods. Animal foods are clearly where we get our nutrients from uh, in a superior way. And then if we, and then we think, well, let's get rid of the toxins. There are so many different types of plant toxins. If we can get everything we need from animals, and it's all very bioavailable with the least amount of toxins, you basically have a carnivore diet or a carnivore-ish diet, which is informed by thinking about which plants might be the most toxic and eliminating those and trying to get the maturity of our nutrients from animals. So that's the, where it all kind of started, that genesis, that idea. And when I did that, I quickly had resolution in my eczema and surprisingly had other improvements, overall emotional stability improvement, overall improvement in the way that I saw the world. My outlook just got better. I, it was like I saw the world through different colored glasses, improved mental clarity, and I wasn't even expecting that and have not had a recurrence of my eczema since. I've been a full carnivore uh, eater for the last year and a half, and over that time, because of my experience, really dove into all of it because I got so interested in what was going on and admittedly, when I first was faced with the idea of eliminating plants, I thought, this is crazy. They have so many benefits. But in the last year and a half and what the book is about, everything I've written is like, hey, maybe we should question this idea. Yeah. Yeah. I had uh, <clears throat> Dr. Anthony Jay on and he was suggesting that, you know, there's some, some genetic uh, factors that a lot of people don't know um, that that maybe more of us have these genetic, fac genetic factors than we understand that we are sensitive many more of us are sensitive to chlorophylls and to oxalates and is it of your opinion uh, do you do you believe that 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 m m even if it's optimal uh but do you think that most people more than we think at least are are highly sensitive and, and react poorly to to plants overall across the board yeah i think that that's the case now what i will say as a corollary to that is that I don't think every person on the planet needs to eliminate every plant from their diet. Um, in my own personal diet, I don't think that there are, and I've looked into this in detail and debated Chris Masterjohn about this multiple times. And, you know, I, I, there are no nutrients that human cannot get from eating animal foods in, in optimal amounts. So I think there, and that, that statement assumes that we are on the same page about polyphenols. So in terms of vitamins and minerals, there are no vitamins and minerals that you will lack eating a nose to tail animal-based diet. If you're just eating the muscle meat, we might miss some things. But when you think about that, when you think about the fact that humans can get everything they need, and we can have the vitamin C discussion in detail if you want, if humans can get everything they need from eating animals nose to tail, I think that forms a very good baseline diet for people. Whether they want to use that as an elimination diet or their long-term diet is up to them. And then some people may want to add back plants as they tolerate. I think there is genetic variation in terms of how we tolerate plants. Some people tolerate more, some people tolerate less. In my own life, I've decided, hey, I don't really see a need for plants 
nutrients because I don't miss them. My diet is very satisfying, very enjoyable. I've never been somebody that's super driven by color on my plate. Um, I'm more interested in the taste of the food and how it makes me feel, how it allows me to drive my car through life metaphorically. And I don't see a need to incorporate plants back. But if people want to and they're not sensitive, you might do it with some perspective on what are the most toxic plants. But I do think that there is significant genetic variation and that many people are more sensitive to plants than they believe. If you are always swimming in a certain temperature water, you don't know what the contrast is, right? So this is the idea where you put a lobster in a pot and if it's hot water, the lobster like goes crazy and you know, but if you just raise the temperature slowly, we don't really feel it. and. That's perhaps not the best analogy, but I think that a lot of people don't know how good they could feel. And that um, that was the case for me. I did not believe that I had depression or anxiety, but when I cut out plants, something changed. It was subtle, um, but something definitively, measurably, like reproducibly changed in my brain in a way that I had not expected. And so, um, you know, what I'm about is helping people understand, number one, that animal foods are the most nutritious foods on the planet, end of story, and that plants can be toxic. And when we leverage those two things together, we can figure out where our optimal health may be. I don't think everybody needs to cut out all plants, but I think a lot of people will do better if they think about which ones are the most toxic. And cutting out plants, I think, completely is a totally viable strategy if people want to go to that level. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing that I want to highlight, uh, which I think is an excellent point, um, is that you don't know how good you can feel. And when when I did carnivore for the month of January – uh, last year, I did Carn- World Carnivore Month. Um, I had Sean Baker on the podcast, and was like, "Okay, I'm going to try this finally." You know, um, what I found was that my my cravings changed dramatically. I wasn't, I didn't feel hungry, and even though I was on day twenty of eating steaks, I still wanted to eat steak. I still craved it. I still enjoyed it. It still made me feel good. I felt balanced and calm emotionally. I slept great. You know, I think the one the one alarming thing for me uh, was the lack of bowel movements. Uh, it, it was it was really interesting to see how 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 less frequent I was going number two. And it's and and hopefully you can you can speak to this too. I, I understand that because you're consuming highly bioavailable food from from animals that you're using it completely. So like it's not that you're constipated because I I didn't feel like I had to go. I didn't have the urge to go and I couldn't. That wasn't what it was. It was that there just wasn't that much waste. I didn't I didn't excrete much much waste because my body was using the two ribeyes a day. Uh, that I was eating and all that stuff. Can you? Because I think that's staggering for people that for people that are that are under the presupposition that if they just that if they go carnivore that they're going to be constipated and uncomfortable and and have you know a distended tummy because they're just eating so much food. It's it's not the case. Can you can you speak to that? Let's talk about let's talk about poop for a little bit, Doctor Paul. Let's talk about poop. I love talking about poop. The first thing I'll mention is that though Sean is a great great friend of mine, he and I don't see eye to eye on the optimal way to construct the diet. And I would not recommend just eating muscle meat. So earlier, I kind of said this, and I'll just re-clarify it for people. I believe that our ancestors would have eaten animals in a nose-to-tail fashion. And that includes seeking fat in addition to protein and in a pretty significant way. I think our ancestors always 
is hunted fat uh, as the primary nutrient. And I think that for some people, the overconsumption of protein without enough fat will lead to constipation and that that is not a good thing. Um, the other thing that I think is often ignored for many people is the importance of organ meats. And I think our ancestors and we should all be consuming all of the organ meats that we can, whether it's kidney or liver or brain. It's, it may make people squeamish, but if we want to eat the way that our ancestors would have, and really to honor the animal, there's a lot of unique nutrients throughout the animal. This is where we get things like bone broths, um, which can have lots of good minerals. If we make them properly, they can have calcium and boron and magnesium and um, lots of glycine and connective tissue. And I think that just eating ribeye steaks is uh, a starting point for people that's very approachable, but not a sustainable nor an evolutionarily consistent way to eat a carnivore diet. So having said that, you, I agree with you that on a carnivore diet, the bowel movements are smaller. Uh, when I was eating more fiber years ago, I would have sometimes two to three bowel movements a day. And uh, now I only have one bowel movement a day in the morning. And it's probably a much smaller bowel movement than I would have uh, even one of the three that I might have had with fiber. But I will have a, a moderately sized bowel movement every morning. And I believe that that is the way people should move their bowels regardless. And it kind of raises a yellow flag for me when I'm working with people if they're not having a daily bowel movement. Um, you know, one to two days, maybe. Maybe, you know, you're stressed, you're traveling, not a big deal. But when people don't have a bowel movement for a few days, I think, okay, let's look into what's going on with the gut flora. Let's look into what's going on with your fat to protein ratios and other things. But generally speaking, if humans, humans do not need fiber to have healthy bowel movements, this is a completely wrong misconception that is promulgated by mainstream media, but is not supported by the medical literature. So in the book, uh, which is called the carnivore code. I go through this in detail. There are so many studies which show that fiber does not improve constipation. What fiber will do is give you bigger bowel movements and they will be more frequent. But that for people with constipation, they also have pain and bleeding and they need to use laxatives. And so what fiber does for people with constipation is it gives them more pain, more bleeding, and does not decrease laxative use. So if you want to have more painful, difficult to pass bowel movements, that's what fiber will do. But fiber does not fix constipation, nor is constipation a lack of fiber per se, nor is uh, diverticulosis, which is the outpouching of the mucosal layer of the colon through the muscular layer, uh, a lack of fiber. That has been disproven multiple times. And in fact, there is a large case series looking at colonoscopies and uh, the amount of fiber that people ate was positively correlated, meaning directly correlated with incidence of diverticulosis. That is, those who were eating more fiber had more diverticulosis. It's an epidemiology study. We can only hypothesize about causation, we, and we can look at the correlation, but there's a very strong correlation between the amount of fiber people are eating and the amount of diverticulosis. So what happens on a carnivore diet, it's, it's what is considered a low residue diet. Much more of the food we are eating gets utilized, which is a good thing because when we eat fiber and we poop the fiber out, that fiber is uh, basically uh, interfering with absorption of nutrients. And this is seen over and over uh, in vegetarians and other people that they are less um, 
less replete in minerals and fiber will impair the absorption of minerals. Fiber will also impair the proper uh, enterohepatic recycling of hormones. And women who have more fiber in their diet are more likely to be anovulatory. There's a cycle called the BioCycle study, which shows that as women increase their fiber, they are probably having less of the estrogen they need for normal cycling, and they are more likely to miss a period, become anovulatory, which is a bad thing to happen. So fiber is generally, I think in my opinion, doing bad things for humans by inhibiting the absorption of nutrients, uh, inhibiting, uh, well, pulling out hormones that we sometimes want, in this case, affecting women's menstrual cycles. And it's making our stools bulkier, but really usually just making them more painful and not making them easier to pass per se. When you remove all that, you have smaller stools, but if people are not having a daily bowel movement on a carnivore diet, I think that they are falling prey to what I would say is dirty carnivore, quote unquote. There's a way to mess up any diet, right? You can mess up a ketogenic diet, you can mess up a paleo diet, you can mess up a vegan diet or a plant-based diet. It's very easy to do on all these diets, and I think that if we are not getting enough fat, or enough salt, we will not have bowel movements properly on a carnivore diet. But mm. human gut physiology for basically almost every single human on the planet, like if you are getting enough fat and enough salt and enough water, you should have a bowel movement pretty much every day. And when people are saying they're constipated, I think that they're probably just eating two to three ribeyes a day. It's too much protein, not enough fat. And I wonder about the salt. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you for that clarification. That yeah, I, I really wonder that. And that does that does open and broaden up the sort of the diversity of what's on your plate too. If you're eating nose to tail, like you suggest with lots of organ meats, um, that, that, that changes, it changes your options. It, it allows, it allows for, for more flexibility and more flavors too, I think. Um, uh, I'm curious about, well, uh, conspiracies or not. Um, let, let's let's call it out. Is it big food? Is it is it big food? Is it uh, is it Kellogg that told us that we needed to eat cornflakes in the morning so that we wouldn't masturbate? Uh, does it does it go back to um, sort of the origins of of mega food and monocropping that is that is pushing the the idea that we need tons of fiber in our diet? It's a couple of things. So it did start with Harvey Kellogg and the Seventh-day Adventist. And I did a podcast with Gary Fetke in which I went into this and with him in detail. And people should listen to that. It's a pretty fascinating history. But yeah, I mean, there there is a religious movement um, in this country of Seventh-day Adventists who believe that meat and animal foods are carnal, which they are. I mean, healthy libido and hormones come from having the nutrients that are present in animal foods. And so what they realize is that if you feed humans grains and cereal, which are devoid of nutrients and will steal our hormones, like I said, uh, from our body, you can get people to have less hormonal desires, less libido. This came from a time of temperance when people were drinking and carousing. And I, but I think that most people listening to this would agree that a normal, healthy libido is a very beautiful thing that we should not be abolishing. And cornflakes is basically the anti-libido, as is Wheaties, as is all breakfast cereal. And that's the point of it. It's to give you the most nutritionally devoid thing that is going to mess up your hormones by pulling them out of your body. So that's where it began. And look, I am all for spiritual progression. I am all for refinement. I 
enjoy meditation. I am not amazing at it, but I think it's important to lead ethical lives and be people who are um, valuing relationships and kindness to other people. But I don't think we should be abolishing our libido, nor is that an indication of any health in a human population. And then in the 1960s and 1970s, this um, sort of ideas around fiber were promulgated by a prominent surgeon at the time named Dennis Burkett, who traveled to Africa and was interested in the incidence of diverticulosis. And I think he was also interested in constipation and what he observed. I can only imagine him peeking out from around a bush as the villagers were pooping or something. What he observed were voluminous bowel movements and the villagers in rural Africa eating a lot of fiber in the 1960s. And this is where we always go wrong with epidemiology and observational data is just because it's correlated doesn't mean it's causative. And so what he observed was that the people in Africa did not have diverticulosis like those in the West did, right? Diverticulosis, like I said, is this outpouching of the mucosal layers of the colon through the muscular layers. And I think that in the 1960s, we were beginning to be able to see that on sigmoidoscopy, colonoscopy. I'm not exactly sure how we were imaging the colon, uh, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. But I think that that was when we were beginning to see diverticulosis. And it was known in the West that this was a disease of Western civilization. And so Burke had hypothesized, hey, this is the lack of fiber in the American diet that is causing this problem. And many problems with the American Western diet, the standard American diet, have been blamed incorrectly, in my strong opinion, on a lack of fiber, whether it is low microbiota diversity or dysfunction of the uh, the gastrointestinal mucus layer or the incidence of diverticulosis. I think they, they're all blamed on a lack of fiber, but what is happening here is that the baby's getting thrown out with the bathwater in a sense. It's, it's people saying, hey, you're eating a standard American diet full of processed refined vegetable oils, sugar, processed carbohydrates, and by the way, it's also low in fiber, Therefore, we think that the lack of fiber is what's causing these things, when in fact, when we actually studied it with diverticulosis, we saw the complete opposite, perhaps, at least there was evidence to suggest that that's a viable hypothesis, that, the, that uh, perhaps more fiber might be worsening diverticulosis. We know that more fiber can worsen constipation in some people, and there's a great study that is often quoted in which the removal of fiber completely reversed idiopathic constipation in a in a pretty moderate sized group of people. So this is the title of the study is uh, stopping or reducing dietary fiber improves idiopathic constipation. It's from 2012 in the World Journal of Gastroenterology. It's often quoted, but there were three groups of people who um, were divided into standard amounts of fiber, m like lower fiber and zero fiber, and the zero fiber group completely resolved all gas, bloating, pain, constipation, bleeding, and idiopathic constipation with no fiber. So it's kind of the story that was told to us. And then I think what happened was all the big cereal companies got on board, just like many of the plant-based protein companies are jumping on board today and they see a business opportunity and say, yes, let's feed the people fiber. And how are you going to get fiber? Breakfast cereal, Wheaties, you know, all brand, right? This is a great idea. How are they going to sell you fiber? In the cheapest way they can. And they're going to force it down your throat. And they're stoked about this, except the story's wrong. And it hurts us. And it's not where it's come from. So I think it's a conglomerate. It's, it's, a, it's a very unfortunate convergence of all those things in our history. Are you are you optimistic that it's going to that the food? I mean, now it's what's called uh, it was the food pyramid, and now it's called the plate or something like that. Um, are you optimistic that 10, 15, 20 years from now, we're going to shake off all of that 
uh, all, all of that, all of those assumptions and, and modify the way that we eat and create a new way of eating that puts, that puts meat, um, first. I think we just might, but it's going to be because of people like you and me, my friend, and not because of the government. It's not going to come from the top down. That's for freaking sure. It's going to come from the bottom up because it's going to be a grassroots movement and enough people are going to realize that they feel better eating this way. And hopefully that's what I'm about in my work is substantiating it, showing people there is research to back this up, showing people that much of the things they've been told, many of the things they've been told are misleading, their epidemiology, they're cherry picked, and that there's science and truth behind what we've really known all along, what our ancestors have always known, which is that if you can kill an animal and eat it respectfully, that's what you're going to do. That is absolutely the best food for humans on the planet. Like there's just no getting around that. And that didn't change in the last 200 years. You know, it, it didn't change. Like we've always eaten animals and we can talk about that story as well. The eating of animals was integral into the rapid uh, improvement, the rapid increase in size of the human brain, which began about 1.9 million years ago with Homo habilis. And there's very good evidence for that from stone tools and other uh, evidence of hunting practices that arose at the same time. So we've always eaten animals. They've always been a part of our lives. They've always been good for us. And the narrative just keeps shifting based on corporate and what appear to be financial interests. If we follow the money, it makes sense. Is it surprising that the CEO of Nestle wants us to eat plant-based? Really, it's not. Because my the, the scary thing here, the, the reality is that processed food is the only food that is profitable for anyone to sell, right? No farmer is going to get rich making grass-fed beef. Farmers can get, you know, farmers can make money doing uh, concentrated animal feeding operations. They can make money doing feedlots. But when we're really raising animals in the right way, which is what I think most people are advocating for, no farmer is going to get rich doing that. They might make enough money to feed their family and to grow their farm a little bit and to stay um, profitable so they can, you know, um, invest and, and pay their employees well and and exist between generations. But there are there are no billionaire grass farmer, you know, like grass fed cow farmers in the world. There probably never will be. But you know what? There's a lot of billionaire multinational processed food companies making cereal, protein bars, uh, plant proteins, uh, making vegan veggie burgers now, plant-based burgers. There's a lot of money in that. So where, so let's just follow the money here, right? Like what's going on? I, you know, like what we need more of is real food. People that grow real food don't get to be billionaires. They, they, hopefully they make enough to just feed their family and stay healthy and, and some profit year over year, but it's the people who are making processed food who are becoming billionaires and are making lots of money off us. And as Americans and Westerners in general, we like processed food because it's convenient and it can appeal to our taste sensibilities, but there's, there's got to be an agenda behind it. And I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but look, it's just not that surprising. There's just a huge profit margin there. And that, that's not a good thing. Yeah. I, I think generally anytime you follow the money, um, you're going to learn some inconvenient truths about the way that the world works. You know, I mean, we we don't we covered this with uh, with Rob Wolf, so we don't need to necessarily get into the um, uh, James or John Wilkes, uh, James Wilkes, uh, Chris Kresser debate on Joe Rogan. Um, but when you look at James Cameron's um, vested interest in in promoting 
um, soy products. Verdient. Yeah. yeah. It's scary, man. I mean, it, 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 obviously it, it's not, it's like you said, it's not a, it's not a convenient thing because the answer is slow down, let, you know, let the, let the animals poop in the dirt, let the dirt regenerate so that you can have more diversity because that is more like what it used to be hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, which brings me to another, you know, sort of staggering section of your book. You know, uh, I, I looked at the table of contents and you have a section titled the worst mistake in human history. Uh, that is a, that's, what can you tell us about that section of the book? That's a paraphrase of a, of something that Jared Diamond said. So Jared Diamond is the author of Guns, Germs, and Steel, Collapse, uh, The Third Chimpanzee, and other books. And he's written very eloquently about the decline in human health and pointed out that there was a massive decline in human health uh, at the time of the Neolithic Revolution, which was about 12,600 years ago. So what appears to have happened is whether it's nobody knows why we started farming, but that was when farming started. That was when agriculture started. That was what Jared Diamond has called the cult of the seed. And so he says that is the worst mistake in human history. And to substantiate that claim, he looks at, he has compared in his books very clearly the health of what we appear, what would appear to be the health of the hunter-gatherers that preceded uh, that time, and then the people that came after or around that time based on skeletons. What we see is a very, very clear decline in human health. It's it's staggering. Human height declined uh, around five inches in both men and women. Um, there was a massive increase, sometimes a doubling or a tripling of the incidence of uh, tuberculosis lesions and what are called parotid hyperostosis lesions in the skull and other um, sort of thin bones of the body suggestive of anemias and other nutrient deprivation. Um, and we can see uh, many issues around bone fractures and increased fragility. So there's lots of evidence that Humans got a lot, a lot more sort of unhealthy when they started farming. I don't think anyone is suggesting that before we were farming, we were superhuman. There, people were still getting sick. There were still some incidents of problems, but they increased multifold when that happened. I mean, I think that life has, you know, 20,000 years ago, we're hunter-gatherers. It depends what part of the world you're in in terms of how successful you are with hunts and your overall health. But generally speaking, when we started farming, human health took a very precipitous turn for the worse. So basically, we went from hunting and gathering, and it's, uh, I would argue, we were mostly hunting, and that's an argument I make in the book, to being farmers and our health just tanked. I mean, we didn't realize that, hey, if you only grow one crop or you you rely on only the crops you're growing, that your health is not going to be good. So it's a pretty it's a pretty staggering time in human human history. And it's been talked about many times. And it's it's really not even debated that it happened. The interesting thing is why it happened. Um, there are some hypotheses around the younger dry ass meteor impact causing mass extinction of megafauna, forcing us to farm. Um, other anthropologists suggest that we selectively or sequentially hunted megafauna to extinction, but it appears that megafauna went extinct about that time. So we suddenly went from having really big woolly mammoths and other animals to hunt, which would be quite good sources of fat and muscle and organs that would feed a tribe for days to weeks to 
maybe relying on much smaller animals or having a period of not many animals that were available for us at all that forced this to happen. And um, clearly our health suffered as a result. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm recalling a book I read in college. Um, it's called Ishmael. And I forget the name of this first name. The author is Quinn. Uh, Daniel Quinn. Daniel Quinn and the story of B. Uh, I read it in college, uh, and and it's about this. It's it's more it's a more philosophical take on this transition from hunter gatherer to agriculturalists, but it's like shit starts to fall apart right about there. Like um, community, and we're stagnant, and uh, yeah, yeah. It's funny. I hadn't actually put that together um, until until just this moment. because it's not really my sort of core core awareness, but yeah, uh, fascinating stuff. I mean, I, I'm struck by the depth of your knowledge. I mean, I know it's your thing, but like so many details, your brain is sharp, Doctor Saladino. <laughs> oh, you know that you know that uh, kidney fat man got that sharp brain. <laughs> I think it's kidney fat and liver. Who knows? I mean, I I'll be the canary in the coal mine. You know, if if I start sounding like I'm slurring my words, maybe I'm wrong, and who knows. <laughs> There is an interesting point in Ishmael that I'll just bring up for the for the listener that I'll highlight. So one of the more controversial things that Daniel Quinn talks about in Ishmael is that maybe feeding the world isn't our goal or shouldn't be the goal. So this is a very controversial topic that he brought up. So what Daniel Quinn says in that book is if you have a bunch of people who are starving and we feed them all, we now have 1.5 times that amount of people and there are still the same amount of people that are starving. And this is kind of what Um, what Jared Diamond has said. And I'm not saying that we should have world hunger or allow children to suffer in Africa, but uh, um, the, the point that was made by Jared Diamond in his books is that when we succumb to the cult of the seed, when we began growing food, we stepped outside of an ecosystem, right? When we are hunter gatherers, we are bound within an ecosystem. And if we overhunt the buffalo, we will die. Right. If we overhunt the buffalo and our population gets too big, we hunt the buffalo to extinction. We die. The Native Americans in this country specifically realize this. We are not we did not weave the web of life. We are a strand upon it. But when we step outside of that and we start growing our own food, not placing a value judgment on that, we over multiplied. And then we needed more land to grow food. And then we had to go to the next tribe and kill them to get their land to grow food. And this is kind of the beginning of the problem in Jared Diamond's uh, possible paradigm. And so what Daniel Quinn said in that book was, wait a minute, (laughs) like we've we've gone wrong. And in, in a way they're mirroring each other because if, if we suddenly just decided to eliminate all the cattle from the face of the earth and grow tons and tons of grain and we feed a bunch of people all over the place, that's not going to solve world hunger because another generation down the road, we're going to have more people and we will have completely decimated our the ability of the earth to grow any food because we know that monocrop agriculture is depleting the topsoil of nutrients. The only answer to this equation is returning as much of the world to ecosystems And that is what regenerative agriculture is about. We have to return to an ecosystem approach. Now, unfortunately, the problem here is that there are now 8 billion, 7.5 billion, I forget the number, people on this planet. We have exceeded the carrying capacity of this earth many generations ago. There are too many people on this earth to feed in any healthy, sustainable fashion. People will often ask me, could everyone on the planet eat a carnivore diet? And I say, wait a minute. Can everyone on the planet eat a monocrop agriculture diet? Because the answer is no. We are at the brink 
of complete collapse of our agriculture system based on the depletion of nutrients in the topsoil. What we are doing now is absolutely not sustainable. The only way that we have the hope within our country, which is the only thing that we can really look at, is by creating ecosystems. And that's what's so cool about regenerative agriculture is that when you revitalize the land, we need both plants and animals on land. Monocrop agriculture is just plants, but cows eating grass is plants and animals. That is the way to revitalize the land and to return nutrients to the soil so that we can grow the things that we need that feed the animals which feed us. But monocrop agriculture is not the answer, nor is the elimination of ruminant animals the solution to greenhouse gas emissions. I have a whole section in the book where I talk about this and the fact that anyone quoting ruminants as the number one or any significant contribution to greenhouse gases is basing that on 2013 FAO data that was retracted and is wrong, and that EPA data has repeatedly suggested that greenhouse gas emissions from ruminant animals is not more than 1.8% per year. So where's the other 98.2 coming from? It's coming from your car and the technology, but nobody wants to point a figure there because those are the same companies that are making cereal and plant-based protein, and they are greenhouse gas producers too. We know that we need to produce greenhouse gases to be on this planet, but for people to say what you are suggesting, Paul, is not scalable or is not sustainable is to me a an incorrect uh, characterization of the problem on this planet, which is that we simply do not have an ecosystems-based approach. There is no way to sustainably feed 8 billion people. We've got to come up with something better or we are going to destroy the earth. And we pretty much are. And it's not monocrop agriculture, right? It's ecosystems and we need to feed ourselves to be healthy enough to figure something out. There's We're kind of in a crisis. Yeah. So when you think ahead a thousand years about where we go with this, I mean, that, that, that pretty much... Um it, it complicates cities and skyscrapers and apartment buildings. Um, so then where is it? It's sort of a slow return to a more sprawled out, less uh, less population density to create more diverse ecosystems all over. Like is that is that the big long term like Gaia changing paradigm is that we just sort of like, instead of being concentrated, we spread out a bit and we introduce more ruminants and more plants and, and, and create broad, more broad ecosystems. I think it is. Um, but it's quite challenging. And, you know, homo, I believe it was homo erectus was the longest lived homo species on the planet. They just went extinct, you know, a couple hundred thousand years ago, but they lived, you know, I think people imagine they lived, you know, 1.5, 1.7 million years. Homo sapiens will not be around that long. Many people, we've only been around for 350,000 years. We will probably go extinct. You know, I think many people believe that there's a dystopian future. Now, none of us is really worried about 500,000 years from now, you know, or 1 million years from now. But the chances of Homo sapiens outliving Homo erectus or Homo habilis are abysmal, and I. But I, I think a thousand years from now is a is a pretty scary future, you know. Um, even three generations from now, a hundred years from now, or two hundred years from now, there's going to be some major changes in the way that things look. And as far as I can tell, like, as far as I can tell, the way the way forward, like you are suggesting, like I am suggesting, is an ecosystems approach. It's more ruminant animals grazing on land with other animals. That's the only thing that worked, you know, like there have been buffalo on this earth for millions and millions of years and they did not destroy it. 
right? Yeah. There have been animals on this earth that did not destroy the earth because they worked within an ecosystem. We have to find out a way to return 8 billion people back to more of an ecosystem's approach, or we need to figure out how to grow more food somehow or remineralize the soil or something. Um, but we're, what we're doing now is not working. Yeah. So we got to well, figure out something. Well, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's where Elon Musk is um, taking us to Mars so that we can, you know, create ecosystems on Mars. You know, that's well, what will we do there? We'll repeat the same pattern, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Time. Yeah. Right. You know, it's as, as our conversation goes there, <laughs> As our conversation goes there, it's it, these are important conversations and considerations to make because it really is we, – we really are considering the sustainability of the planet. And there is not a more fundamental conversation for how do we stay around? How do we stay alive? Like how, how can we make sure that we are living in harmony with the planet? And, and I think it's worth even talking about – uh, this ecosystems approach going into the next thousand years or half, you know, million years and going to Mars to, to create ecosystems so that we can just sustain ourselves because you're right, you know, um, Diamond and Quinn talking about, um, the, you know, the introduction of agriculture, sort of the beginning of the, the beginning of the end is, is not, it's not outrageous. I, I definitely. I definitely don't think that the way forward is more is more monocropped agriculture, you know, as people would suggest. I mean, there's, you know, Greta Thunberg was named the time person of the year. And though I laud her, her passion, uh, she is completely wrong about the fact that ruminant animals are causing this. And yet everyone in Hollywood has jumped on board of this. And it's, it's this idea that like, if you repeat a lie, enough times it becomes the truth. And I think that maybe even Hitler said that or someone, you know, similarly dictatorial, you know, or tyrannical. But that's what's happening now is that everywhere you look, people are parroting the notion that cows and ruminants are destroying the planet, which is just false. And the, in fact, it's so false that we should all be in arms and upraged, outraged, because it's, it's nothing could be further from the truth. Like ruminant animals are the way to revitalize the earth and ruminant animals provide humans with the best source of nutrients that we know of today. We don't have woolly mammoths. Ruminants are all we've got. So if we want to stick around, we best be healthy, you know, and the only way we're going to be able to solve this and move forward in a kind and compassionate way with other people is to be, to be healthy, to be able to have access to nutrients. How does somebody who's, who's uh, metabolically unhealthy act not not well, they're not kind, they're not considerate, they're not compassionate, they're looking out for themselves, they're not, they're angry, they're irritable, they're, they're not going to be creative, they're not going to be sleeping well, that is not the answer. We have to nourish our people, and that is clearly animal products. I mean, if we want happier, healthier families, children, spouses, who are going to be able to solve problems, and we can all, you know, be kind to each other, we're not doing that with plant burgers, or salads. I mean, that's, that's animals, man. That's nutrients. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the element that, that makes the vegan plant-based, um, argument, I think so sexy for people is because it has this misguided sort of wokeness to it. Um, and I've experienced it and I know that you've experienced too, is like that there's some sort of moral high ground to not eat animals that, that you're consuming death, you know, um, for like kick. virtue, si virtue yeah, signaling. Exactly. Right. Like, like I, I, for kicks, I follow a lot of people that, um, like Dr. Sebi, 
um, on on uh, on followers of Dr. Sebi on Instagram, and talking about eating dead eating dead things is not the way to be. You know, you can't eat dead things, and you shouldn't kill things. You can survive without killing things. And then you tell just one piece of data about what happens with monocropping and how much death happens from smaller little bunnies hiding in rabbit holes and mice and deer getting chopped up in turbines, and then that goes out the window. And and it's it's a hard it's a hard thing to navigate, and I think that it's even slippery slipperier when. And this is going to be offensive, but I think it's the truth, and I've seen it in my own communities, is that when you don't have great nutrition and you're constipated and you're not sleeping well and you may be anemic and you're not getting the nutrients that you need because you've been a vegan for a year and a half, you you tend to say things that are a little bit unreasonable. You, 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 you tend to your behavior changes and it's and it's true and you see it with professional athletes becoming injured and saying wacky shit left and right it's like whoa what are you doing but it it, it complicates and, and makes this this issue even even harder to be reasonable about well look i don't participate in vegan bashing but there are some pretty nasty vegans out there man and they these are pretty nasty stuff and I, I think it's virtue signaling, and I don't think anyone wants to kill animals in a malicious way. But this is this is completely evolutionarily inconsistent thinking, right? Our ancestors have been killing animals and eating them in a very respectful, spiritual way for four million years, and that led us to be where we are today. I don't think killing animals needs to be cruel, but you're so right, and most of the people I talk to who have a plant-based agenda are, I think that they're coming from a good place. You know, David Sinclair, I had on my podcast. I just interviewed a guy this morning, James Clement. And, you know, they'll say, I don't want to harm animals. I love animals. And I think you've never hunted an animal in your life. You have no idea what it's like to live in a human ecosystem. This is the way that people think, and I'll say this, and I hope this isn't offensive, and I mean this in the most kind and compassionate way, this is the way that we end up thinking incorrectly when we get food from a grocery store. If we're out in the woods, we would realize that, hey, does a lion, should a lion feel guilty for killing a zebra? Like, in order for something to live, something else must die. This is the way of life. And that is not to say that life is cruel, just to say that we all have an imperative to be the best, kindest, most compassionate beings we can be because every single person listening to this, whether they're plant-based or something, you, they, there is no such thing as being a vegan. Like you said, ecosystems are disrupted, plants are killed, there's bi-kills. There is no way to not kill animals if we are on this earth, right? There's no way to not kill animals if we're on this earth. Like, and so we're here as humans. Like the most vegan thing we could do is just just all just jump into the ocean and die, you know, feed the sharks or something. I mean, like, if we're going to exist on this planet and advance our society, create art, heal people, raise families and share beautiful experiences with our children, in order for something to live, something else must die. And it doesn't mean that death is a bad thing. Death can be sacred. And I don't know why we've demonized it so much. Like, look, you and I are going to die someday. And I hope that our bodies return to the earth and all these nutrients go back in the earth or feed something else. That's how it works. We get a chance to be alive. We get a chance to make a positive impact in this world. And then we leave. And every animal is given that choice. And that's what, or at least that chance. That's what happens. And by taking a life to feed ourselves, 
to do something that we believe is good, that's a beautiful thing. We should not be ashamed of that. And we should not be misled into this kind of virtue uplifted paradigm where we don't have to kill things. You absolutely have to kill things. There is no way. If you look at these vegans, like they're going to become unhealthy and they're not going to be able to lead lives, whether it's infertility, whether it's irritability, they're sowing more seeds of evil and hate or just non-productivity in their life. Like we, we have not become people that are so sophisticated that we can't kill animals. That doesn't even work. Like, yeah. and mono and the monocrop agriculture, as you're suggesting is completely destroying the planet. So it's way off base. And most of the time, you know, I think that these are people who have never hunted. They've never been in the woods. They've never had to take a life in order to live. They, they, I mean, an indigenous person like Hadza or Ikong or anyone else in the world, like who has to hunt animals, like th they realize there's no life without doing that. And that that's a very sacred thing. It's a gift from the universe, depending how we want to formulate that spiritually. And so we should recognize it as that and live well, but there's no getting around that until we figure out how to live on air or how to, you know, how to do something else. This is, this is the way of life. It's not bad. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. Yeah. And by choosing to not do that, we're really just um, miscalculating badly in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. It's about, it's about harmony and, and, and harmony is, 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 is abiding by natural laws of birth and death. And yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it, we, we, I think, I think often the argument is oversimplified, um, and, and put into a box to made convenient for a, for a clickable banner or, or an argument at Thanksgiving. Um, but it's, it's, it's deep and complex. It's challenging. Um, I do. I, I have a question for you that I that I that goes back to sort of the the, the carnivore diet that I wanted to ask. Uh, rough transition. Um, do how important is in your approach for this the optimal nose to tail carnivore based um, dietary approach? How important? How much import do you put on um, knowing baselines, um, blood work, gut tests, genetic testing? Is that is that essential? Uh, to, to knowing what is going to be the best for us dietarily? Um, do you start there or do you, or not? Um, no, I don't think people need to complicate it. I don't want to put up impediments or roadblocks. I think that when we're thinking about genetics, genetics plays a role, but at some point it's not as complex as people want to make it out to be, right? I talk about this in my book. I do not believe that APOE4 or FTO polymorphisms are any reason not to do a carnivore diet. The data with APOE4 and FTO is done in insulin-resistant populations and its epidemiology. Specifically with regard to APOE4, we know that in populations that are not insulin-resistant, that are uh, living an indigenous lifestyle, specifically the Simene in Bolivia and the Yoruba um, of Nigeria, I believe, um, APOE4 polymorphisms are protective against cognitive decline. And APOE4 is the most um, prehistoric polymorphism of the APOE gene. So we had APOE4 exclusively up until about 200,000 years ago. And then about 80,000 years ago, APOE, um, about 200,000 years ago, APOE3 showed up and then APOE2 showed up about 80,000 years ago. So for the majority of our evolution of humans, the vast majority of our evolution of humans, we have all had APOE4. APOE4 is the ancestral genotype. Now, APOE3 is the most common one now, but to suggest that APOE4 
precludes us from eating animals or saturated fat is a complete evolutionary incongruity. And it's much more complicated. I did a whole podcast with Tommy Wood about this. The long and the short is that um, both APOE4 and FTO are widely misdiscussed. They're widely misinterpreted. And the studies are done with epidemiology and insulin-resistant populations. It appears that when we are insulin-sensitive, there is no problem with eating animals or saturated fat with APOE4. And there are case studies using ketogenic diets, which are high in saturated fat, that show improvement in cognition in people with an APOE4 polymorphism because they improve insulin resistance. So I'll repeat that. There are multiple case studies that have been published showing improvements in cognition using high-fat ketogenic diets with saturated fat in people with APOE4 genotypes. So it's much too, it's much too oversimplified. So, so I don't think genetics should preclude us from doing a carnivore diet. MTHFR is another one people think about. Well, look, if you've got an MTHFR polymorphism, you need to have enough folate, enough riboflavin, enough B6, enough B12. Where do you get those? Eating nose-to-tail animal foods. Good luck getting enough riboflavin from plants. It doesn't exist in the plant kingdom. You will never – it'll be – virtually impossible to get two to three milligrams of riboflavin, which is probably how much riboflavin we need for an MTHFR polymorphism to be corrected. Um, there's plenty of studies that show that if we get an adequate amount of riboflavin, even someone with MTHFR polymorphisms will have normalization of the function of that enzyme and homocysteine levels will uh, return to baseline or normal quote unquote levels. So I guess that's a long-winded answer saying that genetics I don't think preclude uh, the the consumption of a diet that's evolutionarily consistent, like a carnivore diet. If people want to do it, they can, but they don't need to. Baseline labs, I mean, it's helpful because we're going to do something and we're going to see a change, but I don't want it to be an impediment for people. If people aren't feeling well, there's probably problems with your labs um, that we're going to see. And you, I would, I think that the the, the more important thing would be to do a carnivore diet and then to get blood work from that. But I mean, if, if you're, if you're going to get blood work on a carnivore diet, it would probably be useful to have baseline labs. But the most important thing is to say, Hey, if you're not feeling well now, you probably need to change something in your life, whether it's carnivore, carnivore ish, paleo elimination diets in general, you got to get feeling better. It's probably correctable. And food is a big lever there in some way. I wouldn't let the necessity for labs or genetics be an impediment to starting a lifestyle change. They're all valuable, but it's not crucial. That's a nor do I think that nor do I think that it, there's a whole lot of stuff in that blood work that like I said that would be a, a hard stop or prevent you from doing it. That's good that's good to know because I, I think, you know, um especially for folk and we've had Chris Master John and, and he just speaks in so much detail. Um um, that level, that level of detail of knowing, knowing, your, knowing your blood, knowing your genes, knowing your gut health, um, you know, getting histamines tested and, and, and so forth. It does, it does, uh, it does come with a certain amount of red tape and planning and money to say, okay, shit, well now I got to go do all these tests to see where I'm at. I'm still, my gut still it sucks. I still have eczema. I can't sleep at night, but I got to go get these tests. Well, maybe the first thing to do is to start incorporating like liver into your diet and see, and see if that helps, uh, you know, to start, to start, um, you know, waking up and, and starting your day with bone broth start there, see if that improves your gut and your, and the gut pains. And then, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that. That's cool. Yeah. I just want people to be able to make changes and it, most of it is just lifestyle change. And, 
I think that stuff's valuable, but if, if people have to do all that stuff, they're going to invest hundreds or thousands of dollars and have to wait. Just make a dietary change, you know? Yeah. So walk us through a little bit um, before we kind of take this thing down the home stretch. Well, what, what, I think a lot of problems that people have with, with not, keto, but, but I think more with carnivore is, is access to quality food, access to the right foods. How do you incorporate it into a diet? Where do you buy it? How do you process it? How do you store it? Um, you know, you describing what you had earlier today and what you're going to eat later, there's, you know, there's seven, eight, ten different animal products there. Um, I know that you have partnerships with, um, with companies to help like uh, make it more accessible to people, but what, what should people just, should everybody be going, uh, one is sharing cows and eating one eighth of a cow, buying a freezer and storing, you know, cow products. Like if you could, if you could say, okay, here's what you do. What's the quickest way to be, to, to eat nose to tail? Yeah. So great question. I think the first answer is make friends with your butcher at your grocery store or a butcher shop near you. And if you can't access grass fed meat, then that becomes the imperative. I think that we vote with our dollars and people will say it's too expensive. I can't afford it. And I kind of push back a little of that and say, well, what else do you prioritize more than your health? I heard this great thing on a podcast recently. It was, um, the, the, there were two people talking on a podcast, and one of the person, one one of the people on the podcast was describing something that he had talked to his kids about, and asked them, "Hey, would would you let me cut off your left arm if I gave you five million dollars?" And they said, "No way." Well, it's like it's well, then you're already rich, right? I mean, because a lot of us could do a lot of things with five million dollars, and it's like the same thing. Like, what if I told you, "Hey, man, I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a diabetes. Uh, if I give you diabetes, would you, you know?" Could I, you know, would you do that for $10 million? You'd say, probably not, man. Like, I don't want diabetes. Well, then you're already rich, right? But we just don't know how rich we are. If we have our health, we don't know how rich we are. What is the cost of not being healthy? What is the cost of buying processed food? What is the cost of skimping on our food long-term? If we could all see long-term, like, oh, I'm gonna get prostate cancer, uh, or I'm gonna get lung cancer, maybe I shouldn't smoke, right? this is this is what humans are so bad at. We're so bad at thinking longitudinally. We can only think about what we know now. And if if saving, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month on food, which is not a small amount of money, but if saving a couple hundred dollars a month on food um, is going to result in increased health problems down the road, if I could show that people, they would probably all do that. They would find the money somewhere, whether it's, you know, you know, reorganizing, uh, the finances somehow. But I think this is the best investment we can make is in our health. And I think we should not compromise it. It's not like at the cost of a Lamborghini, you know, yeah. it's, 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 a, it's an investment, but it's, it's, probably well within most people's budget to say, hey, I'm going to eat higher quality food. I'm going to choose to get grass-fed meat and get organs and fat from grass-fed animals. Piggybacking off of that, what I will say is that organ meats and fat are dirt cheap, right? Yeah. Liver, you can get you can get organic grass-fed liver for anywhere from five to eight dollars a pound. And you only need to eat an ounce, a couple ounces a day. So you can get almost a week supply of liver for you know 20 bucks 10 bucks it's it's not expensive to eat liver or to put liver into your diet right animal fat some butchers will just give it to you okay um or it's like three to five dollars a pound for animal fat 
What's expensive is ribeye. What's expensive is steaks. Well, I think we should get a reasonable amount of protein every day. I think about one gram of pound, one gram of protein per pound of body weight, which is a lot more than many people say. But you can either eat that in like grass-fed ground beef or occasional steaks. I don't think that eating four pounds of grass-fed ribeye a day is what most people need to do, right? You can just eat a pound of ribeye or half a pound of ribeye and grass-fed beef or cheaper meats, and then you're getting a lot of your nutrition from uh, pastured eggs or fat and organs, which are much cheaper. So that becomes much more affordable. What you asked specifically was about accessibility. And so you got to see where in the country you live. If you live somewhere where you can get grass-fed meat, that butcher is probably going to have grass-fed liver. That's pretty common. And then they might even have grass-fed bones, which you can buy and make bone stock out of. And some people will just give you the bones too. But I do think your option of everybody knowing a farmer, how radical is that? Like, you know, knowing a farmer, getting an eighth of a cow, that's a great idea. And it connects you with the land. Like, I think most people in the country could connect with a farmer and do that. And it's going to be work, but that's the investment. If we absolutely can't do any of those things, there are online places to buy meat. And I am sort of affiliated with White Oak Pastures, but my God, I believe in those people with my heart and soul. Like, that is the most consistent affiliation I would ever have. If they paid me no money, I would still talk about them. And, you know, part of me just wants to go live there because it's one of the coolest places I've ever seen because the farm is so cool. But there are places like this throughout the country. You can buy meat online, White Oak Pastures. U.S. Wellness is pretty good. They source most of their stuff from Australia but people can get that throughout the country. Here in California, there's Belcampo. People can find tons of places to get regenerative, grass-fed agriculture, raised animals near them that'll be delivered to their door. Um, and, it, you know, look, people might say, oh, about carbon footprint. It's like, look, we just can't win. Like, you, then go to your farmer if you're worried about the carbon footprint, right? Like, walk it, to it's your gonna farmer. Come, right. Yeah, walk to your farmer. Like, go start hunting. Like, that's fantastic if people yeah. are worried about the carbon footprint of mailing having something mailed to them, then then you should go hunt, you know? But I think it's out there. It, these are these problems are solvable if we decide to solve them. It's just how we prioritize these things. And I don't think finances should be should be the determining factor. I think we should it's just it's the value proposition that I think so many of us are not aware of. And we we're so bad at thinking longitudinally. But I think this is the like what is more important than yeah. than your and my health and the health of our families. There is nothing in my opinion. I, I totally agree. And 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 my my, you know, um, my lifestyle and the way that we we eat at my house. I have a six and a three year old. Um, the way that we eat, you know, going to as many farmers markets as we can, um, you know, uh, showing my kids, you know, first firstly sneaking liver into uh, ground beef patties that we have, you know, two or three nights a week so that they don't even see it or taste it. Um, but now like they understand that it's a little bit more minerally. This consistency is different, you know, having, allowing them to, to get a sort of a, a taste for it. Um, making it a top priority, like eating, eating higher quality, especially for, I'm in Seattle, right? So like, um, the accessibility to farmers markets is different than probably someone who lives um, in, a, in a maybe in a rural, more rural area or in an area that's maybe more cut off from from these resources. But the, the it takes a it takes a fair amount of thinking. It takes a little bit more money at first, but it it is the way to sustain the health of your family. And that is the number one most important thing for me and, and my little tiny kids. Like 
I, one quote I saw earlier is like, you think eating high quality food is expensive, try getting sick. And right, like my wife just got back from the grocery store and she, you know, she spent 350 bucks at two different grocery stores, you know, the food co-op, you know, where we buy raw milk. It's, 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 it's not, it's not cheap, but if you buy the bottle and return the bottle to get, that they fill up the milk with, it's the, it's the same price as as the as the garbage milk that you buy that you'd buy at the uh, at a regular grocery store. So it all evens out, and it takes a little bit of planning. But the health and vitality of myself, so that I can do good work, so that I can be present, so that I can have high energy, so that my kids can be happier and they can sleep and not get sick and have you know resiliency. That is worth every dollar, every single dollar. And, and it's, um, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that I'm passing on to my kids every time we grill and when we cook together. You know, I think that the, obviously the greatest example that I can think about is, you know, Ben Greenfield does such a good job of explaining how he treats his family in the way that they think about food and cook food. And um, we should be looking to people who, we, who are doing it right who are conscious consumers, who are thoughtful people, um, because we have to make changes and we can't live on Ritz crackers and Jiffy peanut butter. It's just, it's, we just, it's not, we can't, it's not going to work. That's the worst trade ever. That's the worst trade ever. Yeah. Like that's, and I think it's just, it's the human condition. It's the human condition. We're not going to change something unless we are shocked out of our complacency or it's causing us physical pain in the moment. And that's why we all need to be challenged with this. Like don't make the worst investment ever. Like it's a horrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the last question that I ask um, for everybody uh, before we get into that, uh, please tell everybody where they can find you, where they can listen to the podcast, the name of the book, when it's released, all, all the high points. So my podcast is called Fundamental Health, and you can find all my stuff at carnivoremd.com. Um, there's links to all my social media there. Uh, I'm carnivoremd at all the social sites. The book is called The Carnivore Code. Um, hopefully somewhere around when this podcast comes out, it'll be released. It should be on Amazon. It should be at your local Barnes and Noble. Hopefully it'll be in all the booksellers spots, or you can just, you can just Google the carnivore code book.com is the landing page for the book. And there'll be a link to buy it there. Yes. Boom. I, we, I've seen people clamoring for it on the website. You're, you've got a lot of really interested, really informed people. Like, when is it coming? I can't wait for it. Like, it's that's cool it's, to see. It's cool, man. It's super exciting. I think there's a. It's a. It's a doozy. It's a doozy. It's 375 pages ish. It's a hundred and you know I wrote it. It's 110,000 words, which is probably wow. 30 to 30 to 40,000 words more than most of their books. My editor, my publisher is like, yeah, this is kind of long, and I was like, well. I guess I'll write the Cliff Notes version next, but that's what I had to write, and I maybe I need to take some stuff out. But it's it's quite comprehensive. There's over 600 references in the book, multiple graphics. Like the carnivore diet is controversial, and I wanted to put something out that both really creates a case for eating this way, and then there's a large part of the book that's how to do it, nuts and bolts. And then there's we're gonna release a cookbook next year as well that'll be separate with all the recipes. But yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a it's basically an opus. You know, it's a it's my baby. It's my first book. It's probably not gonna be my last, but it's a lot of work and it's not it's not fluff. You know, there's a lot of details in there. People will definitely have a lot to dig into when they check out the book. Awesome. Awesome. That's Paul Saladino nose to tail in a book. 
<laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, so the last the last question is a fill in the blank question, if you will, uh, and and this is based on everything that you know. This can be experientially. Um, it doesn't need to be um, narrowly focused on the carnivore diet, but if you would, um, please fill in the blank and expand as much as you would like. Everyone would benefit from knowing that we evolved in nature, you know, that we are wild, that we are animals, and that um, if we forsake that, we are unhappy. So all of the ways we need to get back to that, our diet and lifestyle and everything, like we're animals. We belong in the woods. We belong barefoot in the woods, running around, playing with people we care about, eating eating real food from the natural world and interacting with the natural world. That's movement, sleep, everything. Like, And we need to just get back to that as much as possible in all the ways. Dr. Paul Saladino, thank you for joining us today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thanks for having me on, my man. And scene.